text, but this evening, 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 9 through 21 is our text this evening. So let's pray before we open the Word together. Father, we do pray that You would abide with us this evening by the truth of Your Word, that You would minister by Your Spirit in our presence, You would conform us to the likeness of Christ our Savior, and that we would find that even as You spoke to Elijah, that You were speaking to us. In Christ's name, amen. 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 9 through 21, this is the holy and errant Word of God. Then he came to a cave and lodged in it, and behold, the Word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. Behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak, and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am, in, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel, Mahaloah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him. And he was with the twelve. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him, and he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back again, for what I have done, for what have I done to you? And he returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he rose and went after Elijah and assisted him. The grass withers, the flower fades, the Word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. 
I said, I can't go through this text in a sermonic kind of fashion where we're going through everything. It is a glorious text. Uh, there's a lot in it. There's a lot of disagreement over it. But what I want to do this evening is just look at three things, a struggling servant, a sovereign God, and a succeeding church. A struggling servant, a sovereign God, and a succeeding church. You'll remember, if you've been following along in this series, that last week or the weeks before, that we saw that Elijah was fleeing from Jezebel. He had just been on Mount Carmel, and he had had this face-off with the prophets of Baal. And as he had this face-off with the prophets of Baal, he calls down fire from heaven, and this fire consumes these prophets of Baal, even as it consumed the offering that was upon the altar. And as that fire consumed the prophets of Baal, now Jezebel, that wicked queen who adored these prophets of Baal, and as a Baal worshiper, she is now seeking the very death of Elijah. And so as a result, Elijah has fled. He's left Israel, and we now find him lodged in a cave at Mount Horeb, this famous mount where God had been with Moses. We aren't sure what Elijah is doing in this cave. Is he hiding out and lamenting? Is he despairing? Is he spending time in prayer? We don't actually know. And because of that, there are a lot of accusations that are laid at the foot of Elijah as he is in this cave at Mount Horeb. Many commentaries believe that Elijah is being unfaithful here and that he is running from Jezebel, and they interpret his words in verse 10, and which he then echoes again there in verse 14 as a kind of pride and as a kind of hubris where he is bragging and boasting that he has been faithful to God when indeed he has not been faithful to God as he claims. I don't agree with that. Uh, I don't go with the majority of commentators here. I go with the minority. I don't think he is unfaithful for running here. I think there's a sadness in his pleas in verses 10 and verse 14. He no doubt thought that the victory at Mount Carmel, that as he is standing there in the face of all of these false prophets, and as he shows that he indeed is worshiping the one true sovereign God, and they are not, he thought that that would convince. No doubt he thought that as he won that victory on that mountaintop, that Jezebel and Ahab and all of these false prophets worshipers in Israel would be convinced that the living God is the true God. And they weren't. The war doesn't seem to be won. And so Elijah, he's distressed by this. It's not as though he has grown cold towards God. He exclaims, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. He mentions the lack of faithfulness by the rest of the nation of Israel. They're forsaking the covenant. They're destroying the altars. They're killing the prophets. And all of that grieves him. But it's not true of him. And so he's in a kind of melancholic pastoral state. 
He's grieving for the nation of Israel and that it hasn't responded as he thinks it should have. He's disappointed, he's discouraged, but I don't think he's being disobedient. He's just a struggling servant. Many of us have been there. You'll notice the reason I come to this conclusion is a couple of reasons. You will notice that the Lord does not rebuke him for his statement in verse 10 or his statement in verse 14. There's no rebuke. There's a type of reward instead for his faithfulness. He tells Elijah to go out of that cave, and as Elijah obeys, while the Lord passes by him in a kind of theophany, that is a Old Testament appearance of the living God, where God who is spirit and who is without form appears in a form-like state before His people. And He does this as a kind of reward to Elijah for His faithfulness. A struggling servant is rewarded with the presence of a sovereign God. We see a threefold revelation here. The sovereign God passes by and a strong wind, we are told, tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks. And then we're told, but the Lord was not in the wind. And then we see the earthquake, but we're told in verse 11, the Lord was not in the earthquake. And then we're told in verse 12 that he, a fire sweeps through, but we're told the Lord was not in the fire. What's happening here? This constant refrain that the Lord is not in it. God is present, but He's not in it. Well, your mind and my mind and Elijah's mind are to be clicking on all cylinders and think about where have we heard things like this before? Where have we seen things like this before? And he is on Mount Horeb, this mount that God met with Moses, a holy mountain, and we are to reflect back upon God's meeting with Moses. Remember there in Mount Sinai in Exodus 19, we read this, as the Lord descended upon the mountain, there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud. Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like a smoke of a kiln, and the mountain trembled greatly. That's what we're told. And when God speaks to Moses there, we're told, quote, God answered him in thunder. But here the Lord is not in the strong winds. He's not in the earthquake. He's not in the fire. And when He speaks to Elijah, it is not with the voice of thunder. We're told in verse 12, it's the sound of a low whisper. What is all this? What's the presence of the sovereign God who is granting grace to His struggling servant? The kindness. Elijah, though he is a man on the run, he has shown the kindness of the Lord. God does not thunder to him. He speaks to him in a quiet, still voice. He's got a suffering servant. And he meets him in compassion and kindness. 
A.W. Pink wonderfully said about this, he said, when God begins to deal in grace with one of His elect, He continues dealing with him in grace. And nothing in the creature can impede the outflow of his loving kindness. He just speaks to him softly. A troubled heart receives a kind word. The struggling servant is met by this sovereign God. You remember that Elijah has just witnessed a great miracle, a great miracle that had been worked through him as this fire came down from heaven, but now God reassures him with this still small voice, the various elements come before Elijah showing him that God is not confined to any one means of working. God never loses control. He continues to work. No doubt Elijah was tempted to think that God was no longer working. He's defeated the prophets of Baal, and yet they aren't defeated. He's courageously stood against Jezebel and her lackey of a husband, and yet the war doesn't seem won. They're seeking his death, and he's on the run, but God doesn't lack control. This isn't outside his will. This trouble did not surprise him. He's always working, and he can work by any means. And so he shows Elijah this. I'm in control of all things. I can work through the wind. I can work through the earthquake. I can work through the fire. I can work through you as a prophet. He's also telling Elijah, I'm not confined to using you, Elijah, as a prophet. I think Elijah, if he has any kind of frame of mind like you and I, discouraged about the results of his ministry, and that does a great deal of his suffering. You preach as he's preached and acted with courage as he's acted and been as faithful as he has been faithful in the midst of a wicked generation. And then you don't see the fruit or don't see what you expect to see. It is absolutely demoralizing. And we've all experienced that in Christ. We labor in preaching or teaching or discipleship or evangelizing and we don't see what we hope and long for. We pour into our covenant children or family members and they still do not exhibit faith or they still don't grow like we expect. But the entire work may not be through us. That's what God is reminding Elijah even in the midst of this. Elijah, it is not just you. I don't just work through you. I can work through fire. I can work through earthquakes. I can work through storms. I can work through anything that I choose to work through. This isn't all on you. God shows him as he takes him outside of that cave and tells him, look, I'm going to use Hazael, an unbelieving king, for my purposes. I'm going to use Jehu, who is a wicked king in Israel, for my purposes. And I'm going to raise up Elijah to follow you, Elijah, to accomplish my purposes. It's not all lost with one man. 
It's not all lost because he didn't see the fruit in his generation that he desired to see. He's a sovereign God who is always at work. And the struggling servant is met by this sovereign God to reassure, reassure him of a succeeding church. The church succeeds. This to me is the Old Testament passage that kind of comes along that New Testament passage. The gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. This is it. Elijah, I'm raising up Elisha. I'm raising up Jehu. I'm raising up Hazael. I can use the elements in this world if I desire. And you know what? I'm going to accomplish my, my purposes. And the church is going to continue. In fact, I'm going to keep a number that shall not bow the knee to Baal no matter what you see. I keep the church. My purposes are being worked out. There's always a remnant. We're never alone. And there are always leaders for the next generation of the church. When Moses, this great redeemer of the people of God, who has faith like Moses can stand before Pharaoh who despised all the riches of Egypt for the sake of the glory of God, who is like that that could lead a nation across the Red Sea? God raises up Joshua. Who can speak like Elijah and call down fire from heaven and consume false prophets? God raises up Elisha. Every generation, when in our day an R.C. Sproul passes or a J.I. Packer passes, God raises up others. When a pastor moves on, he raises up others. At URC, or witnessing this tonight, I've said a number of times over the last year or two that we, we are, for the first time as a church, we're going through a generational change. For the very first time that this church has officers, has elders that are retiring. Never had this before. Our first elder go emeritus and retire, and we have others that will begin to rotate off and retire. These men that have led this church for its entire history. What happens to URC? God raises up more leaders, He provides for His church. That's what we witnessed tonight. The ordination of additional men to the office of elder and deacon, they are, it's a continual encouragement that the Lord will not forsake His church. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Even as every covenant child that is born into our midst, so as every single time we see a profession of faith and someone baptized up here as an adult, every single time it's a confirmation to you and I that the Lord has not abandoned His church. He is working His sovereign purposes in this generation, and He is doing it as He wills. And he just gives us, as we go through life, these little glimmers of reminder as He is doing so in dramatic fashion to Elijah here. 
The struggling servant is met by the sovereign God to reassure him of a succeeding church. I'll just close with this. It, it is often hidden. It's often in the shadows and in disguise that the Lord is doing this very thing. He says here to Elijah that he shall keep a number of 7,000 in Israel whose knees have not bowed to Baal. Elijah didn't see them. Think, how can Elijah, the great prophet of this generation, not know these 7,000? But he doesn't. God often works below the radar. And that in part, I think, is the point of all of these different elements coming by Elijah. They are done in ferocity and they are done in in great show, because this is what Elijah just saw on Mount Carmel. But then it's as if God just stops, and now He just speaks to him in a small voice. Just to remind him, this is how the kingdom primarily goes forward. I can do those things, Elijah. You saw me do it through you. I can do these things. But it's by the word going forward. And so he speaks to him. And he's going to raise up Elijah to speak for him. And the word going forward, it's not dramatic. It's not showy. It isn't celebrated like if we were calling down fire upon different things around us today. That's how his kingdom goes forward. And the officers of the church, just like Elisha shall, they are to be safeguarders and propagators of that word. The Lord has blessed us. He is sovereign. He is working. Let's pray. Our Father, we are thankful that You are a sovereign God who is always keeping Your church. Though it may seem that we live in a wicked generation, it may even seem like it has the upper hand. We know that you are at work. We see a very visible sign and reminder of that this evening. As we see officers called forth by you, recognized by us, ordained and installed by you. That the church might continue on in this generation and for generations to come. Thank you for being our faithful God. We pray all of this in the strong name of Christ. Amen.